Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, Rational Security listeners. Before we get started with this week's episode, we wanted to let you know that we're hoping to close out 2021 with a mailbag episode, where we talk about topics that you bring to us. So if you have any burning questions you want us to answer, wild hypotheticals you want us to suss out, or object lessons you want to share, no matter how serious or how frivolous, be sure to email them to us at rationalsecurity@lawfareblog.com. But do it before December 22nd. With that, here's our episode. Can I share something embarrassing? I once watched the Sex and the City movie back to back all the way through in one sitting. Wow. Because I was stuck on a transatlantic flight <laughs> in one of those old airplanes that had like the like the like not what it was not digital, the analog like entertainment systems where they had like a literal tape. They were playing one movie for the whole plane. Wow. Back when I was in law school going for an interview in London. And they were playing the Sex and City movie was the only movie I hadn't seen. I had, I, and I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to watch this. And then it got to the last 10 minutes and the electrical system on the plane picked <gasps> up and restarted the whole thing. Oh, no. And I was like, but I still I still want to know what happens. So I rewatched the whole thing. So you again. just rewatched the whole thing? <laughs> yeah. I think I was like flipping through a book or something, but like it was mostly the movie. I'll, I'll be honest. That's a better explanation than why I once watched uh, every episode of a season of 24 consecutively, which takes about 18 hours from start to finish. Not 24 hours? No, because of the commercials. Uh-huh. So it doesn't actually take 24 hours. It was just something we tried. We thought it would be funny. <laughs> Scott, I've always thought of you as a real Carrie. I've always thought of myself as a real Carrie. I don't know what that means, to be clear. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> but I, I I definitely I definitely think of you as a as a carry. You have interesting shoes. I think so. Oh, yes, I do have interesting <laughs> shoes. Hello everyone. Welcome back to Rational Security 2.0, aka Rational Security Revenge of the Pith. Because despite our somewhat bloated <laughs> length that we've gotten to these last few weeks. Breaking well past that hour mark on that last episode, we are here to bring you some sharp and insightful uh, opinions about things happening in the news. I am, of course, Scott R. Anderson, joined here today by my co-host, Alan. Say hello, Alan. Hello, hello. And Quinta. Hello. Brevity is the soul of wit. Indeed. And we are joined uh, by our uh, repeat guest for the second time appearing, who knows what time listening, probably second, (laughs) Molly Reynolds of the Brookings Institution and Lawfare, of course. Welcome, Molly. Uh, it's good to be here. Um, I did not uh, expect to live that down from my last appearance, but I'm so glad that we just got it taken care of right out, right out of the bat, Scott. And yeah. every subsequent time you will appear on this podcast. Because it is legendary. We are. This is the reassembly of the senior un, senior editor, Quad, Quadrumvert? Quadrumvert? I think that Quad, actually is Quad, a word, right? Quad, yeah. Quartet? Quadrumvert. Quartet. Oh, qu- Let's go with quartet. Qu- that qu- sounds more natural. Quartet. It's the it's the millennial takeover crew of uh, Rational Security. That's exactly that's, right. That's us. Yeah. The senior editor rhomboid. Let's make some nineties Ger- references. Geriatric <laughs> millennials, Gen Z, and everything in between. <laughs> exactly right. Well, with that range of deep perspectives, uh, we are excited to bring you here for to have you here today for the whole damn system is out of order edition which I thought was a quote from a Pacino movie, and evidently it is not. It is a bad paraphrase from a Pacino movie, as I discovered when I was trying to find that clip and working on my Pacino impersonation. But thankfully, I don't actually have to break it out this episode. Instead, we are going to talk over three of the top stories in national security and national security-related news from the past week, including topic one, winners use Google Slides. The January 6th committee has revealed some of the texts and emails handed over by former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows, including a now notorious PowerPoint presentation laying out what appears to be plans for a coup. It doesn't appear to be. It is pretty much plans for a coup, but it's less clear who wrote it and what he did with it. What do these revelations tell us about what happened on January 6th? And maybe more importantly, what our expectations should be for the committee itself? Topic two, the smog of war. 
A top secret cell of elite U.S. soldiers is accused of manufacturing ambiguity on the battlefield in order to evade legal and policy limits on the targeting of civilians. What do these very grave allegations mean for the way America fights its wars? And topic three, eight simple rules for legislating in an age of disorder. I don't know if anybody remembers that sitcom from the early 2000s. John Ritter classic. R.A.P. John Ritter. Uh, progressive Democrats have urged their leadership to overrule the Senate parliamentarian's determination that bills passed through the filibuster-proof budget reconciliation process can't include certain types of immigration reforms. Do these demands threaten the operation of the Senate, or is something entirely different at stake? Alan, let me hand it over to you to introduce topic number one. So it has indeed been a busy week for former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. We are recording this on Tuesday afternoon, and earlier today, the uh, House January 6th committee uh, voted unanimously to recommend criminal contempt against- That was, uh, last, that was last night. I, I think it's important to note that like they're, they've taken to doing this in the evening hours. In the dead of the night. I'm not entirely sure why, but, uh, but they, have, they have taken to holding contempt votes at like 7 p.m., and why are they wearing those robes? I don't think this is helping the kind of public perception of this committee whatsoever. That's okay. Thank you all for that correction. The New York Times story that I read this morning announcing the recommendation of criminal contempt charges reported on a vote last night, apparently. So, but either way, Meadows is now facing a recommendation for criminal contempt for refusing the committee's subpoena uh, after first agreeing to cooperate and then abruptly changing his mind. And as Scott mentioned, the committee has released some dramatic documents regarding Meadows. Uh, so this includes this PowerPoint that was, well, we're not sure where it's from exactly. It appears to be have been created by some far-right freelancers who then circulated it to Meadows, among other high-level Trump officials. Whoever made it, it is makes for very disturbing reading. It outlines a plan to declare a, quote, national emergency and then use the National Guard to respond to so-called fraud, which, as we all know, did not, in fact, exist. Additionally, the committee released some texts that many high-profile figures on the right, including some Fox Media hosts, sent to Meadows on January 6th while the Capitol is being attacked, hoping that he would be able to talk some sense into President Trump and get Trump to publicly tell the rioters to uh, stand down, which, as we all know, did not exactly happen. Uh, so lots of questions here. But first, I would like to use this as a little bit of a therapy session for me. For reasons that I can't exactly articulate, I found this latest batch of documents and releases, especially the PowerPoint, um, even though I know it wasn't written by Mark Meadows, I found it exceptionally disturbing. Um, I mean, I found this whole thing disturbing for the last year, but there was something about seeing the whole coup set out in a bad PowerPoint that really brought this whole thing even more home to me. Everyone help my troubled psyche. Should I be as freaked out as I am or have we not really learned anything new? And this is just a particularly splashy example of stuff we've known for a long time. Quinta, you, you, you will calm me down. I think this is a question of baselines. So if the question is, should the PowerPoint raise your baseline level of alarm? I think the answer is no. If the question is, should the PowerPoint help you recalibrate where your baseline level was, if perhaps it was low, then maybe the answer is yes. And what I mean by that is that, look, the situation is really, really bad. Trump did everything that he could to try to overturn the election, and it didn't work. But the fact that he tried is pretty terrifying. And there is reason to be deeply concerned that the Republican Party might try something like that again. We already knew that there were lots of insane things flying around the White House, and particularly in Mark Meadows' inbox, including emails from Mark Meadows to, if I'm recalling correctly, uh, members of the Justice Department suggesting that they investigate things like whether ballots had been changed by beams from Italian satellites, if I'm remembering that correctly. Is this different than the Jewish space lasers, just to clarify? They're Italian space lasers. They're Italian space lasers, but they're not Important like Italian Jewish they're, space They're lasers. also different than the know. Chinese-made 
thermostats. Yes, which are, uh, and I, the I bamboo the, from the which Chinese is different than the bamboo. Ballots. Okay, yes. it's important to keep all of these fever dreams. Separate. But so look, the the point is that all of these fever dreams were in Mark Meadows's inbox. He was sending them out to people, saying, "Hey, can you look into this?" So the fact that we now have particular evidence of a one particular insane conspiracy theory that was in his inbox doesn't move my personal needle from where it previously was, which was like 14 out of 10 on the alarmed scale, if that makes sense. I do wonder if there's some element of like seeing it in writing or seeing it in writing after many months sort of not thinking about this at front of mind that makes this particularly alarming. But I would say if you already have your hair on fire, which I think you should, this shouldn't prompt you to add gasoline. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So I think this last point Quinta made about form is really important. Um, and I and personally, I think that's a lot of like why this particular artifact of um, January 6th has gotten as much attention as it has. Because the the underlying material is profoundly uncomfortable and like should make us profoundly concerned. But there is something I think for a lot of people that just feels very different about seeing it in this medium that we see lots of other things that don't have to do with plotting a coup uh, are presented in. Like we all make PowerPoints. And so there's something that I think that like has made people really uncomfortable about that form. I think it's this, I think there's a, a similar dynamic with the text messages that have come out and we're, we're a group of four extremely online people. So um, it's probably not introducing new information when I say that like Jake Sherman um, has indicated that some of those text messages that Liz Cheney was reading last night were sent from him to Mark Meadows. And then he posted a screenshot of the text messages themselves, which is Sherman itself, being a Hill reporter, to be yes, clear. Yes, which itself like is also like there's something there, I found something like extra unsettling about seeing like a physical screenshot of the text messages coming from someone who was under siege at the Capitol to be like, again, to add a level of alarm to what Quinta has already, I think, eloquently described as a baseline level of alarm. Um, and so it, it really is this, I think there's this like form element of the PowerPoint and other particular items of information that are coming out that is um, playing a role here. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, I think part of it also is the element of premeditation that obviously went into it when you're developing a proposal like this. Now, it's worth bearing in mind, this, this PowerPoint presentation did not spell out what happened in advance, right? Elements of it, sir, chunks of it, and maybe like some sort of underlying logic. But it was a proposal that like wasn't executed, certainly in its entirety, in various regards, or really anything really looked like what the PowerPoint was proposing really wasn't acted upon. But it was this idea that there are people involved in having contact with the White House, feeding information in the White House, the Meadows is then relaying to significant people, expressing a willingness to do this, and that these are some of the same people that have been implicated in the events on January 6th. And so it kind of undermines this factual narrative that some people have begun to put forward and that has taken some grasp, which is that, oh, this was you know, something ranging from a peaceful protest or an intended to be peaceful protest that got out of hand to a act of civil disobedience, but with never really these sorts of broad ranging intents. And this severely undermines that. So by the way, do these text messages, this idea that, oh, the White House just didn't know what's going on. There was some miscommunication. People don't know how serious it was. You had people on the ground actively sending messages to the person next to the president saying there is a you know armed standoff happening at the front door of the House of Representatives. Like that's how serious this is. There's no illusion the president had information about this. This is what I assumed was the case from the outset. I think for a lot of people who've been following this, frankly, a lot of people who follow the Trump administration very closely, this is exactly what we expected. And so this isn't revelatory by any means. It's actually kind of confirming a lot of our pre-existing theories about how this went down factually. It may serve some public good in terms of A, like being the sort of jarring primary source sort of material bite-sized snapshot type thing that punctures through people's consciousness to drive home that, like, yeah, this is the actual factual narrative that makes sense. Efforts to divert away from it are misrepresenting the facts. And so that way maybe will undermine a little bit. I think certainly the January 6th committee and lots of other people are hoping this will undermine that counter narrative. But who knows? There's a lot of facts out there already that are running strongly against that counter narrative, right? It's not fact-based. It is instrumental, you know, construction of the facts to fit an ideological construct. Now, I think this really could, this stuff really does matter around 
the peripheral people, people who aren't in the Trump core. Um, and those Trump core get kind of a disproportionate degree of, I think, attention because they are so active, so strong feeling, so divergent in their views of the reality that happened here. But, you know, I don't think it, I don't think it's a game changer, long and short of it. You know, I think this is what we should expect to come out of this committee. I think we should expect to see a lot more of it before the committee's work is done or else the committee's not doing its job. So I think that this is actually like a helpful sort of segue from talking about the PowerPoint specifically to, I think, the, converse, the slightly broader conversation we want to have on kind of where the select committee's investigation is, which is to say that like this particular piece of material is public because Mark Meadows turned it over to the committee and is not is saying that like this is not subject to any executive privilege or other kinds of privileged claims. So we can talk about sort of the, the state of that debate um, and litigation if, if, if folks want to. But like, we have this particular very troubling uh, document because Mark Meadows and his legal team decided it was in some kind of their strategic interest to turn it over to the committee. Um, and so I think one of the big questions that it raises for me is actually, like, if this is what we have because Meadows has chosen to turn this over, like, what do we not have yet? Um, because Meadows did not choose to turn it over. And there's a lot of sort of debate about Meadows was cooperating and then he stopped cooperating. And now his position seems to be like, I have turned over all this material and I will not answer questions about it, which is kind of an odd stance to take. But I think, I do think that in that sense, this particular document is important as a, a specific case of this like broader question about where we are. You know, one thing that occurs to me is that I think a, a, some reporter, it may be Maggie, Maggie Haberman of, at the Times, but don't quote me on this, was pointing out um, the texts are particularly striking because Trump, it's very well known, does not use text or email. Uh, he just tweets. And so a lot of the texts that were put forward from the select committee are people directly trying to get in touch with Trump using Meadows as the mechanism, including really strikingly uh, Don Jr., who apparently texted Meadows to reach his father saying he, as in Trump, has got to condemn this ASAP. We need an Oval Office address. He has, has to lead now. It has gone too far. So that's interesting on a number of levels. But the one that jumps out at me, just thinking about the executive privilege aspect, is that ironically, because Trump didn't text or email, that means there are all these records of people trying to get to him through Meadows that Meadows has handed over because they're not privileged. So in a weird way, it actually adds to our documentary record. I was going to say, it reminds me more than anything, actually, of the development of the record around the Ukraine impeachment, where the big gap was always that final connection to Trump. People had lots of conspiring and facts leading back in to people one degree removed from Trump, but not to Trump himself. Um, and that was a gap in the factual record, one that's really hard to get around when you have executive privilege and other privileges, and that I think Trump is well aware of business executives sometimes do stuff like this too, when they're very litigation conscious and risk averse. And I think he's kind of bringing that ideas into the White House where it works even better. And it was something that Republicans hinged on and said like, well, this is the reason why this doesn't amount to impeachment. Impeachment isn't what is really at issue here. Now we're really talking about the court of public opinion. And frankly, a lot of these other people have more skin in the game maybe than Trump or maybe more vulnerable than Trump. And so now the question becomes how many of them are going to be willing and able to say Oh, I didn't do. I didn't pass this along to President Trump. I have all these messages now coming to me. Is Meadows going to be willing to take that as his public position? That may not bother him in the end. Maybe there's enough people who buy into the narrative. There's nothing really wrong here to pass on that it won't hurt him in the end. But I, I, I think it tends to be a very one-sided perspective. I think these are things that they might find costly, and it might drive a little bit of a different individual approach for these intermediaries than was that stake in the Ukraine impeachment. No, I, I agree with um I agree with Scott and I, I did say to someone today that um this moment in the committee's investigation feels a little bit like the moment in the first Trump um impeachment investigation when the House Intelligence Committee started talking to uh career ambassadors. It's this notion that like they've reached a point in the investigation where the people to whom they are speaking um have different incentives than some of the other folks that they have spoken to in the course of the investigation. And whether that turns up new or different information, whether any of these folks are willing to sort of speak publicly in front of the committee in what are apparently planned for many weeks, according to Liz Cheney, of hearings in the new year. I don't know, but it does, if we sort of try to like zoom out from the day-to-day -day 
like who knew what, when, what, where are we in the process fight questions. Um, I think there is this kind of arc of an investigation and we're at this moment where there are people with different incentives who are like walking through the doors of the O'Neill House office building to talk to the committee. Before we go on to our, our next topic, I do want to ask Molly and Quint in particular as our resident committee watchers, you know, whether this new material or, or what this new material tells you about whether the committee is on a path to success, however success is defined here. Because it, it does seem to me that, and this kind of gets back to Alan's therapy session, um, I, I wonder if one of the reasons that I'm reacting so strongly to this information is because it is also coming against the backdrop of Joe Biden's increasingly low approval numbers, indications that Trump you know, is seriously considering running in 2024, moves that Trump is making within the Republican Party, especially among the states to shore up his position and especially to take over state you know, election boards if it comes to that in 2024. And, and so to me, one of the roles this committee has, though I'm uncomfortable saying it this way because it makes it quite political, is to get as much information about Trump's bad acts out in front of the public before the next election cycle rolls around. And, and I'm, I'm curious what you all think about that and, and if, if this latest round of disclosures suggests that the committee has the ability to put a lot of damaging information in the public record. And again, damaging because it really is damaging because it reflects the malfeasance that Trump committed while in office. Quinta, I will say, has written um, a very nice piece on like what does for the Atlantic on what does success for the committee look like. So um, she should um, she should speak first. <laughs> well, thank you, Molly. So yes, I should say I do have a piece in the Atlantic published this weekend about what success would look like for the January sixth committee. And my argument there was essentially that if our hope is that the committee is going to find you know, the smoking gun, the piece of evidence that's going to change people's minds about Trump and about what happened on January 6th, I do not think it will succeed just because the media landscape is so utterly poisoned at this point that it is really, really hard for me to see how anybody who doesn't already think that Trump is culpable is going to be convinced of that. But I don't think that means that they that they can't succeed. What I would say is that I think you can measure success by two metrics. One is creating a record, like a exhaustive or as exhaustive as possible historical record from an authoritative source about what happened that day, which is a extremely valuable thing to have. And if you want to frame it in a political sense, Jamal Bowie at the New York Times has a, had an interesting column recently about thinking about January 6th in the, the context of um, Republicans waving the bloody shirt after the Civil War and sort of using that as a way to rally voters in a kind of a patriotic sense to get to the polls. So I think there's that possibility. And then the other sense in which we can think about success has to do with the separation of powers and Congress kind of reasserting itself and reasserting its ability to get information and conduct an investigation and legislate after four years of the Trump administration in which Trump routinely undercut Congress and prevented it from getting information. And on that latter score, I think there are some signs that the committee may be, if not, you know, 100% successful, at least successful enough that, you know, this will have been a, a worthy undertaking. But I'm I'm interested to know what Molly thinks here. Yeah. So for me, the biggest question to keep in mind about success is like, what are the things that the committee does that really only it can do? And so to the, to Quinta's first point about sort of finding smoking gun information that is going to change people's minds about what happened on January 6th. It's just not like, as Quinta said, it's not clear to me that anyone's mind is going to change, but it's also like, as we are, as we sort of learned from like Mark Meadows publishing a book, like it's not necessarily true that some of that, that the only way some of that information could come to light is because the committee finds it. There are, however, and I think this is part of why the lawsuit involving Trump's executive privilege claims about material for which the 
the committee is asking. I think it's part of why I have been talking so much about reforms to the Capitol Police, why Quinta has been talking so much about like learning what happened with the FBI, is that there is information and there there are recommendations for legislative change that I think really only a committee of Congress could make. Um, and so that for me, whether the committee does what only it is positioned to do, that's the marker of success. I was going to try to think up a transition here, and then I I decided that not doing transitions is my brand at this point. So I'm just going to jump right in. The New York Times had a pretty astonishing story published uh, earlier this week about what it referred to as a single top secret American strike cell involved in the fight against the Islamic State. Um, It had the very odd name Talon Anvil run by Special Operations Command. And there is some incredibly disturbing stuff in this New York Times report about the unit and specifically the Delta Force commandos from the U.S. Army within that unit basically disregarding or really, really pushing the line on constraints on targeting operations in the fight against the Islamic State to the extent that it seems like Quite a large amount of civilians may have been targeted and wounded or even killed by this unit. So if you remember, uh, there was a story in November published by the Times about a airstrike where the United States dropped multiple massive bombs on a group of civilians, many of whom were killed. It seems that this was that same unit. And part of what is really disturbing about the Times reporting is that it's describing not only really, I think, cavalier and shocking behavior by Talon Anvil, but also just a real lack of institutional response in response to the people who were in the unit and were disturbed, who saw what Talon Anvil was doing and were disturbed, that the military really just on, on every level has kind of failed to take action here in response to what seemed to be some pretty astonishing breaches of how the U.S. military is is supposed to behave. I mean, so there are a lot of questions here, and I'm really curious, Molly, for your thoughts on what role Congress might play in terms of accountability. But before we do that, Scott, I just wanted to turn to you and ask, does this describe war crimes? Like, how, how extreme, in your view, if you put on your international law hat, is the conduct described here? That's a really good question. And you have to dig into some of the factual situations they describe. It's certainly from the New York Times reporting, it sounds like this is something that would venture very much in the direction of war crimes, which is that it is strongly suggested that in at least some of these cases, the these people were at least at, acting recklessly in regard to civilians. In a number of cases, a few anecdotal ones they talk about, they're talking about people actively and seemingly knowingly targeting civilians which is horrendous and awful. This is a really important story and something we need uh, to dig deeper on. It's good the New York Times brought it forward and that the Department of Defense is going to feel some accountability and pressure for around this set of issues. I think we had a topic a couple of weeks or months ago about drones more generally, and I kind of complained at the time. I hate topics about drones because they distract what's really important and they hide it under this guise that it's a new technology that's the problem, not the people choosing how they use it. And I think it's a good example of that, because this is not a problem that's unique to drones, airstrikes, other things are involved in this sort of technology, uh, although there's an interface with kind of drone and other sorts of modern technology, obviously. But the real question here is one of management and oversight and process that appears to be really lacking here. And it's worth putting the story in the context of what was happening with the ISIS offensive in this era where you saw actually an escalation over several years from 2016 to 2019 in the rate of apparent civilian deaths. And it was during this period where the initial effort to push the Islamic State out of Iraq had some early success and then was stalling, uh, in part because ISIS was holding itself up in dense urban areas, taking human hostages in many cases, or effectively, if not kind of like expressly, like using people as hostages, and dug in in big parts of the country. And a decision was made at one point politically to say, we are going to push 
harder to try and make progress in this conflict. Uh, and then particularly, you had the Trump administration come in. And I don't, the story does not draw a direct parallel here. I think there's a question worth asking. Uh, but the Trump administration come in and expressly say, we want to up the tempo of operations significantly. We want to put more pressure on ISIS to push them back further and to make more faster progress in this conflict, while at the same time devolving battlefield decision making substantially to the point that in this case of this unit, you had kind of line level people in consultation with intelligence analysts making major decisions about these use of, of armed forces. And then you had people coming out and saying, we're concerned about this. We don't trust this strike. We think we're making mistakes here. And that going into an administrative black box where it's not clear there was any sort of oversight repercussion command structure to hold people accountable here. These sorts of omissions are what lead to abuses like this. That's the decision-making structures, the policy-making structure that is really the problem here that really needs to be scrutinized in addition to individual accountability and set up and improve for the next time down the road because it's not the last time the United States is going to be involved in a conflict like this. In fact, it's already involved in several ongoing conflicts like this where it's doing similar activities, albeit at a lesser scale. So in addition, in addition to the individual accountability, we really hope I hope to see strong pressure on the Department of Defense to think about how they set up units like this and did in this case. A third aspect of the story that I think is really problematic that I just want to flag before we turn, turn elsewhere is that we've seen a number of cases where the last decade or more of really high intensity, high volume special operations usage by the United States has led to, to in a lot of cases, a sense of impunity among certain special operators. I think that's really hard to say. I've worked with a lot of people who are come from the special operations community at various points, phenomenal people, like done incredibly brave things and hard things. But we've had a number of cases where individuals appear who have been operating in incredibly high stress, violent environments for many years at a high clip in many cases have been doing things that are just not consistent with how the United States fights wars. Um, we've seen, you know, uh, cases of special operators, you know, targeting civilians individually with sniper rifles, various allegations of them, you know, doing these things at a small scale. This looks a lot like that at a much larger scale with a much larger set of weapons being given to them and their discretion. And so it's it's there's a continuity between that I think is really problematic that I know people in the special operations community have already begun to think about and wrestle with. And hopefully this will be a, another part of that as well. It, it's one of the most upsetting stories, frankly, I read a long time. And there's a lot of different aspects that we can dig into it on. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Just to follow up quickly on Scott's point about process, one thing that did strike me about the story was the role that kind of almost legalistic arguments about self-defense versus not played in this. So you know, understandably, the rules of engagement permit a little more leeway when you're calling in a strike for self-defense purposes than when you're calling in a strike for purely offensive purposes. But of course, the line between those two things is not entirely clear, and there's some play in the joints. Uh, and as the story makes clear, you know, one of the ways in which these special forces got around the, the intent of the rules of engagement was basically to characterize all of their airstrikes as for the purpose of self-defense. And so, you know, there's kind of a, a extreme version of this critique, um, which says, look, this is what happens when you try to legalize what is fundamentally a, you know, violent exercise. And this is the, the thesis kind of most recently, most famously made by the Yale historian Sam Moyne in his book, Humane. But one doesn't have to go 
nearly that far to observe that even if overall legalization and proceduralization is a good thing, if you kind of go halfway, right, if you just set out some rules, but then you don't have a watchdog making sure that those rules are being followed, not just kind of to the letter or manipulated, but rather that they're being followed in the sense that the spirit of the rule is also being obeyed, not just the letter of it, you, you can end up with these problems. And so just at that level, this strikes me as a, a kind of a cautionary tale. And the, the other thing that I wonder about is how representative this is of the problems that are going on in the DOD, right? You know, it's not like there's some acceptable level of war crimes that happens in the U.S. military, right? You know, any any crime of this magnitude is unacceptable and needs to be dealt with. But there is a difference between, you know, one or, you know, a very small handful of incidents, right, and something that is much more common. And so kind of my question, um, and we'll just have to do more reporting on this, or the DOD hopefully can look into this, right, is what the denominator is here. Now, Scott mentioned that one of the reasons this happens is because, you know, if you push the authorization for these strikes down to lower and lower levels, this is one of the risks that you get. And so looking at this event, looking at the previous issues around certain special forces, individuals and units, it does strike me that that this is unlikely to be an isolated incident, um, which makes this story as horrifying as it is in the particulars, kind of even more ominous given what it might reveal. But that, of course, naturally to the question of who will figure this out. Hopefully Congress will play some role. So Molly, can Congress fix this? Uh, so I, I am obviously, I've been accused of being an apologist for the United States Congress, but I will say that sort of detailed real-time oversight of things like this is just simply not the U.S. Congress's strength. Um, and it's not, it's especially not Congress's strength in the current moment related to the conduct of U.S. military operations abroad. The I think many, many members simply do not want to be seen as trying to cabin the ability of the Department of Defense to quote unquote keep America safe. And so I think, I mean, I was in reading the article, which troubled me as much as it sounds like it troubled all of you. I noted that, you know, the operations in question took place between 24 and 2019. So in some cases, quite a long time ago, and we are learning about them now in the press. And so simply, if, if we think that Congress is going to be well-equipped to conduct detailed oversight of this sort of thing, it's just not um, not Congress's strength. Could they and should they, um, at a policy level, try to um, legislate uh, in some of these areas? I think that's a, a different question. But they're simply not, it's not their strength to try and do the like administrative level oversight that's necessary here. My question then is what accountability does look like? Because if you go back and look at that first November piece from the Times, one of the really striking things about it, and I think it's set out actually in the piece itself or in the accompanying daily episode that they released on their podcast, the named source for that piece came forward because he had raised concerns about this one particular airstrike to his superiors and to the DOD inspector general and was disappointed with the result and felt that the IG had not actually done the work to dig into this carefully. So now if I'm remembering correctly, uh, Secretary Austin has called for another high-level investigation into that particular strike. But the picture as a whole does not fill me with confidence in terms of the Pentagon's interest or ability to hold itself accountable here. I mean, is there a way to beef up those measures? Like what on earth can be done? Because it just seems like this, it's appalling that this happened in a backward looking sense, but it also makes me deeply concerned about how the U.S. conducts the use of force abroad in the future if this kind of behavior isn't checked. I mean, I think this is a good illustrator of actually the role that Congress really can play because it's not in the direct oversight role, but what it can do is set up those structures that create the pressures that lead DOD to better regulate itself. And that means fully resourcing a DOD IG's office. DOD is a huge agency. It's got a big IG's office, but I think there are I recall there being from several years ago, I spent more time around this issue set perennial questions as to whether they were adequately resourced to do the scale of mission they need to do, let alone things that's like out in the field like this is with a special operations community inherently difficult to operate and difficult to get eyes on. Um, you need special authorities, special resources to do that. Another 
you know, frankly, in my opinion, an answer that I think really fits into all sorts of use of force issues that we've seen Congress focus on more and should be for the conversation is simple transparency. Transparency, not just to Congress, but also to the public, because frankly, there's no better inspector general than the eye of the public and people scrutinizing this through, you know, crowdsourcing, whatever you want to call it. But those sorts of activities can really bring a lot to light that any institutional actor is going to be limited in their ability to do. And while there's a limit of what you can do in a classified environment, there are steps you can take to encourage more transparency around this stuff. Notably, Congress has made a lot of effort around this recently. It's gotten a lot of pushback, particularly in the Trump administration. Transparency around civilian casualties was an ongoing issue, was prior to the Trump administration too, and the Obama administration, heightened even by the Trump administration pulling back some policies the Obama administration had installed and adjusting some numbers approaches. Well, I don't, I haven't checked in to see how the Biden administration is doing on this front yet, but I think they're going to feel a lot of pressure after this incident to fix some of those processes. The last thing I'll say is about the legalization of this sort of conduct. I think the thing to bear in mind here is that actually the law doesn't excuse this sort of stuff by any stretch of the imagination, right? Like this is clearly unlawful. The reason why a law can allow for collateral damage, international law of armed conflict, is where there is military necessity. And that's why self-defense is often allows for situations where you see a lot of, you might see more collateral damage than you might for a uh, strike of opportunity or something that's proactive is because they say, well, look, we're, we're going to face an imminent attack. Military necessity is actually very high here. And so the other variables we have to enter into our equation are overbalanced by this overwhelming military necessity in a way that if it's a proactive strike against a target and actively threatening us, we can't claim that same level of military necessity. That's oversimplifying it, but that's the basic logic behind it. What's happening here is you see people abusing the law, using the administrative process that are supposed to ensure compliance with the law to actually evade it and apply it, quote unquote, apply it in a way that actually doesn't correlate with the law very well at all by abusing their authority as decision makers and as fact finders. It's part of the reason why, again, you need processes in place that separate those roles and provide a little more accountability to those sorts of actors. That seemed more than anything was lacking here. The only good news that come out of this is that that is something that you can fix too through better policies in the future. Um, the real question needs to be why weren't those implemented here and what steps need to be taken to ensure they're implemented adequately in future scenarios like this. Talking about Stretching the rules, let's shift over to the United States Senate and the parliamentarian, because we have been seeing a debate about how the rules of the Senate should be applied. In particular, we've been seeing this debate pop up in the Democratic caucus, looking at this question of immigration reform proposals some members of Congress want to include in legislation that's going to go through the budget reconciliation process, a, a statutory carve out to the filibuster and rules carve out to the filibuster that allows budget related legislation to pass with a simple majority instead of three fifths majority usually required to kind of overcome the various barriers to legislation in the Senate. But the determination as to whether something fits in that special avenue, that special procedure is whether it's got a more of a policy impact or a budget impact to simplify things way too much. And that's a decision that's often ultimately left to the parliamentarian. Uh, it's often overlooked figure, but has having a very strong central role in this debate in determining whether this legislation is something because the Senate will be able to pass to the point that we now have members of Congress calling for the major Democratic majority in the Senate to overrule the parliamentarian's determination that certain of these provisions won't be able to pass through, a step that some have said is just another aspect of the rules of the Senate, while others have said is an attack on the rule of law in the Senate. Molly, this is, of course, your bread and butter as a Congress watcher. Tell us about the parliamentarian, this debate, and what it all means for how our upper chamber is supposed to operate. Sure. So um, I will I will try to be brief. Um, I have spent more of my professional life thinking about the Senate parliamentarian than really anyone probably should, but here we are. So uh, I think the important, a couple of important things to remember. So the parliamentarian, her job is to advise the Senate on situations where the Senate's rules and precedents are not clear. So the Senate has, a, has its standing rules sitting alongside those standing rules are precedents, ways that those rules have been interpreted in the past. And then there are of course, situations that arise where there is no clear ruler precedent that says what should be done. One of the most consequential in the, the current political moment, responsibilities of the office, is to 
advise on what is and is not permitted under what's known as the bird rule, which is a um, a rule that stipulates what can and can't be included in this filibuster-proof reconciliation process. But I think that thinking only about the bird rule um, really elides her job, the job of the parliamentarian in the institution more broadly, which is to be a nonpartisan neutral referee of the, the chamber's rules. And so uh, we talk about her the most when we talk about reconciliation, but that is far from the only thing that she does. I mean, I think a lot about, you know, what would the Senate look like if it did not have a parliamentarian who was trusted by all members to adjudicate disputes over um, committee jurisdictions. When a bill is introduced and it is, uh, someone has to decide which committee has jurisdiction over the content of the bill. And in sort of a legislative state of nature where there was not a parliamentarian who made those, made those, uh, those referrals, like what would that look like? And I think, you know, we started this conversation by talking about January 6th. And we now know that the parliamentarian herself was actually quite central to making sure that that what actually happened on the floor of the Senate unfolded in the way most consistent as possible with the um, with the Electoral Count Act. So I really see, and, and then I'll just say one more thing, and then I think I can answer other questions about this, but I really do see sort of maintaining the parliamentarian as a sort of neutral, nonpartisan office as sort of the Senate's equivalent of a rule of law issue. Like we have a, a centuries of kind of general parliamentary law and principle in Western democracies that say that the person presiding over the chamber should not kind of go rogue and inter- and sort of interpret the rules willy-nilly as he or she sees fit, which is kind of a um, a piece of what would be involved um, with ignoring the advice of the parliamentarian. And so I, I think if we, th- if we think of the Senate as trying to maintain its own sort of stable institutional equilibrium in, in this chaotic political moment that continuing to um, to respect the parliamentarian, even as she is a person, a single person who is not elected, who has a, an enormous amount of power. I think I, I see that as kind of a, um, a, a rule of law issue. So I will admit to being quite skeptical of the role that the Senate parliamentarian seems to have here, but I'm also someone who knows vastly less about Congress, then you, Molly, will have like forgot ever ever have forgotten, uh, as as they say. The, the question I do have for, for you, though, is you know we hear a lot about the Senate parliamentarian, but we never hear about the House parliamentarian. And I actually wasn't even sure the House had a parliamentarian until they I do. Um, yes, no, I, yeah, they, they do, according to the uh, Galactic Encyclopedia, aka Wikipedia, that I just consulted. There, there is a House parliamentarian, and yet we never hear anything about. Uh, about him. It is, it is a he at the moment. And so my, my, my question is, why is that? Why is there such a difference between the role that these parliamentarians plays? And, and if the answer is, well, it's just the House is a majoritarian institution and the Senate has all these you know, rules of comedy, blah, blah, blah. It does not strike me that the House is much worse of a legislative body than the Senate. I mean, they're neither of them are all that great. Yeah, that, those are those are those are fighting words. Adam. Are those are those oh. spicy takes? Um, <laughs> everyone, everyone at me, all you Senate stands at me. Certainly for anyone who um, spends a lot of time thinking about Congress, I would say many people have a have a preferred chamber. Um, but it is it is a good question. Like, why don't we ever talk about um, the House parliamentarian? And some of that, I, it does have to do with the fact that the relationship of the House's rules to what it does is different than the relationship of the Senate's rules to what it does in no small part because um, the House rules are reconstituted every two years when a new House is sworn in. The vast majority of what is in the House rules this Congress will continue over to what is in the House rules the next Congress. There is sort of several centuries of House legislative precedent as well. So it's I'm not saying that like we start from square one every every time. But the fact that the entire House membership turns over every two years does mean that sort of the House rules are adopted anew every two years. In the Senate, however, the Senate is what we call a continuing body because um, two-thirds of the Senate's membership persists after each election. And so I think the kind of the relationship that the the Chamber's rules um, has have to, to 
the way that it works. It's just a little, it's just, it's a different institution. And then I do think that, again, because of changes in the broader political and partisan environment over time, we have gotten to this point where one particular legislative process the reconciliation process over which the parliamentarian has a substantial amount of influence that has come to bear so much of our policymaking responsibility that we've gotten to this point where like there's a lot of pressure on this this particular nonpartisan office. Reading the stories about sort of Democrats humming and hawing about what to do about the parliamentarian reconciliation did make me think of something that I think I've either mentioned before on Rational Security, but definitely on the Lawfare podcast, which is So the concept of constitutional hardball and also David Posen's concept of hardball as anti-hardball, so meaning sort of pushing the line on what you can do constitutionally in order to step out of the cycle of escalation. And obviously this isn't constitutional hardball. It's more of, I guess, parliamentary hardball, (laughs) maybe. But I'm, I mean, I'm, don't want to direct every single question to Molly, but I am curious what you think, Molly. Of Is that a fair way to characterize the way that it seems that Democrats at least are thinking about this? Or is the Senate just so specific as a body that that analogy doesn't really apply? I mean, I think it, I think it has, I think the analogy does some work here. I mean, I think for me, the biggest question is like if you are the democrats and you are thinking about making really profound changes to the way that the chamber works by taking a vote that requires disregarding previous precedent like undermining the chamber's nonpartisan rules referee along the way isn't the best way to do it. It's sort of the like, if you're going to disregard the advice of the parliamentarian on the bird rule, just get rid of the filibuster entirely. And like, that's not, that's not me saying that's what they should do. But my, my position is that like, if you're, if you're going to have a conversation, if you're going to take seriously the idea that you um, should eliminate, should sort of like disregard what the parliamentarian is telling you is permissible under these particular rules, you should just be prepared to fundamentally change the way the the Senate works. And then you would also, uh, there are all kinds of other things about the reconciliation process, which we do not have time and rational security interests listeners are probably not interested in hearing me talk about that mean that like it's a suboptimal way to legislate. And so I think that, again, I I do think, Quinta, that it it bears some similarity to um, these conversations about constitutional hardball. And I guess the way that I put it is like, if we're going to talk about sort of hardball as anti-hardball, there's a better form of anti-hardball to be played if I'm going to sort of try and work, work through that analogy. I want to take issue with one line of argument that keeps popping up in this debate and that you just echoed briefly, uh, but I don't know I don't know if you intended to echo it in endorsing it or, or just kind of borrowing some of the vernacular vocabulary, which is the uh, drawing a line between this and an actual rule of law issue. Because I actually think it kind of fundamentally biases this debate in a particular direction when we call this law as law, right? The rulemaking function of the Senate, like the House, is inherently invested in each chamber to define its own rules by the Constitution. The reason why there's a question here as to whether the Senate, in this case, can redefine its rules is because they've adopted a set of rules that say, oh, we're going to adopt rules changes through a particular procedure that has operates on something other than a strict majoritarian basis, which is the kind of default for both chambers for decision making, as the filibuster does. It strikes me as like kind of inherently problematic to say that the Senate can give away the future Senate's authority, maybe even in the same two-year gap, although that's less problematic. But to say that, oh yeah, we can bind our hands so bindingly that we can give away our own constitutional authority to define our own rules. As a legal perspective, certainly as a constitutional perspective, I don't think that's the case. Now, that doesn't mean that the, there isn't anything wrong with moving away from the parliamentarian, right? But the, the arguments to me are much more policy arguments. They're saying, this is a good way we want to do things because we need to have a functioning body. And we shouldn't just let the immediate 
benefits of this moment and opportunity in this one circumstance distract us from the benefits of the scenario in myriad other circumstances. But so often people seem to be going to this rhetoric about saying we shouldn't buck the law. We shouldn't ignore the that doing that somehow doing this is illegitimate or unlawful. And I just don't think that's the case. I actually think the law says something very specific in this circumstance. Maybe there are good reasons Senate shouldn't use its discretion this way. But I don't like giving into that argument because it just plays to the to the view of people who say, oh, the filibuster, these other these other kind of sacred cows somehow have been elevated to the status of a legal norm. Yeah. And I think I was not when I was sort of drawing a parallel to um, the to other debates about kind of the rule of law. I was not necessarily saying that that uh, that's how we should think about this. I think this. I'm, I know, but I'm using it as my stuff. Yeah, course, but so I like, think that um, Scott, I think you um, your comments in general illustrate something really important um, about how lawyers think about Congress versus how people who aren't lawyers. I, I'll, I'll identify political scientists in this camp since I am one of those. Um, but I think generally. I think of the uh, sort of continued reliance on consistent rules and precedents and the interpretations thereof by the Senate as a stable political equilibrium, like small p political, and that part of what's important about respecting them is that we don't want the legislature sort of descending into procedural chaos, and that um, that kind of forbearance is is part of what sustains the ability of the, the legislature to exist into the future. Can, can I just try to synthesize then for a second what I think Molly and Scott are, are saying? I mean, I, I do think Scott is right that at a conceptual level, it doesn't make a lot of sense to say that overriding the parliamentarian by a majority vote of the Senate undermines the rule of law, given that the Senate, which at the end of the day is and can kind of only be a majoritarian institution, and there's nothing about supermajority votes in the Senate except for treaties, but that's like a different thing. So in that sense, Overriding the parliamentarian is just as much a part of normal law as listening to the parliamentarian. So I think as a legal matter, I, I think Scott is right. Now, I, Molly, to your point, I, I do think you're right that you do have to have some sort of background under shared procedural understanding. I, I think the reason I continue to be skeptical of at least the modern role of the Senate parliamentarian is because of something you said earlier in the conversation, which is the outsized role the parliamentarian has because of the outsized role that reconciliation has. But to me, that just shows how maybe listening to the parliamentarian in some sense kind of upholds the kind of, I don't even call it rule of law, but procedural stability of the Senate in the short term. But in the long term, I think it undermines it because it's precisely the filibuster that has contributed in part to the Senate being such a dysfunctional body and being yet another, like, it's like not just a single veto gate, it's like a double veto gate because not only is it its own body, but it has this, this uh, supermajority requirement for essentially everything. So I think I totally agree with you, Molly, that it would be better instead of overriding the parliamentarian just to get rid of the filibuster. But ultimately, if they override the parliamentarian, it's going to be, it's going to be under, I think it's going to be clear to everyone that they're doing so as an incremental way of getting rid of the filibuster. And that to me seems like a, a good enough trade-off. I think I think that's right. Except I guess, and and maybe this is again where I am, like a little bit of a institutional purist. So I do think that one of the reasons why the filibuster has persisted in the way that it has is because. Democrats, when they enjoy unified party control, see the reconciliation process as an option for pursuing changes that they want, the policy change that they uh, care about. And then they see this as sort of an, an outlet that allows them to do that while also preserving the filibuster. And that that's part of why the filibuster still exists. And I, I, ju I just think it would be a like, more institutionally respectful position to just change the filibuster. And I am saying all of this while also acknowledging that like, the way you eliminate the filibuster with only 51 votes to begin with is itself a like procedural, a little bit of a procedural assault. It is not like that. There are rules specified for how you change the rules of the Senate and they don't involve eliminating the filibuster with only 51 votes. Um, so there's a, there's, it's a little bit of turtles all the way down here, but some of it is like a six of one, half a dozen of the other uh, kind of question. Well, fortunately, we are going to have to leave this conversation there. But of course, this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to you on this week. But before we get to those, 
I have a PSA for our listeners, actually not just a PSA, actually an MCA, a Mia Culpa announcement, um, because we've realized we have been making a mistake. Every week I have come on here and I have told you that if you subscribe to support Lawfare on Patreon, that you will get access to an ad-free feed for this podcast. That is true for some of you, because some of you were given instructions about how to get that ad-free feed, but definitely a number of people were writing into our messages to us that were somehow getting lost in our internal forwarding process and not getting responded to and had trouble signing up for that. Some of whom have even dropped out uh, somewhat angrily uh, over the inability to get that ad-free podcast feed that I have promised you every week. So my deepest apologies to that. We think we have figured out the issue. We believe there are new instructions posted on the main Patreon supporters page. So please do go on there, get your ad-free feed. Please do sign back up at patreon.com slash lawfare to support us to get that ad-free feed. And we are so sorry again. And if you send us a message this time, we will not miss it. We have people actively watching and ensuring nothing else gets dropped in the process. So uh, a big mea culpa from us on that one. And thank you again for your patience. With that, let us go to Object Lessons. Quinta, I'm going to let you get us started. The holidays are here once again. Uh, nonstop from Thanksgiving through New Year's. And so I'm going to recommend my favorite cookie recipe, which is not necessarily a holiday cookie recipe, but it is sort of, you know, hearty and warming. And therefore I feel it is appropriate for the winter solstice. It is uh, the Cook's Illustrated Brown Sugar Cookies. So they are just sugar cookies, but they're made with dark brown sugar and brown butter, which is the real treat. So you get this nice sort of nutty, warm caramel flavor. They are delicious. They are just difficult enough with the butter browning that you feel somewhat accomplished when they come out, right? Which I think is the the mark of a good cookie, but they are also resilient enough that if you totally screw them up and add too much flour, which I have absolutely done, uh, the little hockey pucks that result are also delicious, even if you don't want to serve them to your family necessarily. So highly recommend, big fan. We will put the the link in the show notes. It you nominally uh, require a Cook's Illustrated subscription to see it because it's that good. But uh, my dirty secret is that other people have also posted it on the internet. So we will link to one of them. So my object lesson is several movies that I am super, super excited about. Holiday season doesn't just mean delicious brown butter cookies, but it also means big blockbusters. And this is especially true for someone like me who's Jewish and from the East Coast, you know, that's just what you do on Christmas. You go and eat Chinese food and then you go watch a movie. And, you know, it's been hard to go to movie theaters over the last two years for obvious reasons. It's kind of the the one little thing that I've missed the most about pandemic. Obviously, that's not the biggest problem with the pandemic, but we all have our own little things that we miss the most. And for me, it's it's going to the movies. So there are three movies in particular I am super stoked about in this holiday season. Uh, one is the new adaptation of Macbeth with the ever amazing Denzel Washington in the in the titular role. Um, I believe that'll be streaming. And then two big blockbuster movie theater movies that I will be definitely going to, Matrix 4. Um, I still maintain that Matrix 1 is like one of the top 50 movies ever made. I mean, maybe one of the if top If you ever had movies. a doubt that this is a show run entirely by geriatric millennials, Alan is abolishing those right now with his strong endorsement of The Matrix 1. I... Cannot. I mean, the problem thing is, I saw the. I think I was like twelve when I saw it, which is maybe the the single best age to see the Matrix. It really imprinted on me. Matrix two and three really bad. I think everyone accepts that. I'm really hoping Matrix four kind of redeems the series. And then the final movie I'm excited about, which I have no doubt will be terrible, but in the best possible way, is Moonfall. It is the new Roland Emmerich movie in which Halle Berry saves the Earth from the moon crashing into the earth. All I have to say, if that doesn't scream popcorn movie, I don't know what it does. Super, super excited for that. So I also have a movie recommendation as my object lesson, but my movie recommendation is 
not a new movie. Uh, it is. It came out last year at Christmas time, and it is not uh, anything nearly as impressive as Macbeth. But it is a Christmas movie that does have a plot that relates to Senate expedited procedures, and it is a movie called Operation Christmas Drop. It is available on Netflix, and it is a it is a uh, it is a Netflix Christmas movie about a congressional staffer who is sent to evaluate um, a base for closure under the uh, procedures that Congress uses to close military bases. Correct. Uh, it is a delight. It is a it is a Christmas movie that uh, talks about congressional procedure. What more could you ask for? And Quinta, I have to say, I really uh, speaking on behalf of the two other toddler parents on this podcast, I really do appreciate that you have shared a like idiot proof, error proof Christmas cookie recipe. Since I can't speak for Scott and Alan, but I know that I have a very hard time getting through anything that requires sustained attention without my toddler uh, interrupting me. Well, happy to assist, but wait, is the depiction of congressional procedure correct in the movie? That's my big question. Is Christmas germane, Molly? I Answer it for the children. I don't think I yelled at the television at all about any errors while watching the movie, which I think is like a good baseline for me about whether something is wrong enough, in this case on TV or on the internet. Like, do I yell about it? I really thought that with my mini rant about how amazing the matrix was my object lesson was going to be the nerdiest movie themed object lesson of this episode and i was wrong i just got out nerded that's hard to do molly i award three points to hufflepuff well done we still have one more movie recommendation to go because my object lesson is also a movie recommendation Uh, following on my theme of holiday movies i will endorse a second one in addition to operation christmas drop I always want to say Operation Dumbo Drop. Was it Christmas Drop? Okay, good. Is they relate? Is it a sequel to Operation? Dumbo? Are there elephants? No. All right. Well, that's too bad. That seems like a lost opportunity. Um, what I want to endorse is it's it's holiday movie season. I love holiday movies. I've already watched Why Christmas was my favorite old holiday movie. I'm going to watch Love Actually at some point. I'm one of those guys, and it's going to happen. But my actual favorite holiday movie, after thinking it over recently, I realize is. Uh, a Christmas Carol, but not the George C. Scott edition, not any of those other editions. I love the Muppet Christmas Carol, which is truly a phenomenal 1992 cinema classic. It is a great rendition of the Christmas Carol. It is really, really entertaining songs that I can sing to. I, I rewatched this movie as a teenager or maybe in my early 20s and was like, oh, I know all these songs by heart. I had no idea. That's how many times I watched it as a child. But Something when I realized when I watched it later in life was that one of the big song sequences was was missing and I could not figure it out. I watched it on every streaming service. I watched a couple of DVDs and I researched it and I found out, turned out studio execs when they re-released it decided the movie had too much heart and not enough Muppets. And so they cut out one of the more human-to-human love song sequences, which is this really touching scene where, uh, you know, you have the Scrooge and his fiance like, break up. And it's actually pretty affecting when you're, like, a lovelorn teenager slash 20-something watching this Muppet movies over the holidays at home by yourself. And I was so sad I couldn't find it. I actually tracked it down on YouTube. And evidently it was only available on certain dvd like extras and then they re-released it and they said we actually lost the original film of the scene the negative so we actually can't even choose to include it in re-releases but guys last year we had a christmas miracle because disney studios in digging through their files found the original negatives of this film and the original audio track and so now disney plus has re-uploaded a muppet christmas carol with this missing song which is the same song that comes back at the end of the movie. So when they cut it out, it didn't make a lot of sense, Mr. Studio Executive. That's okay. I forgive you now because they've restored it and you can watch it in its full glory. So my recommendation to you, particularly those with young kids, dig into a Muppet Christmas Carol. It's phenomenal. Uh, And enjoy that heartbreaking sequence in the middle in a way that no one's been able to for the last 15 years or so until now. And with that, Scott has now outnerded me after I outnerded Alan. Yeah, I award you exactly. three, 300 points to Hufflepuff. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you will find liner notes for this episode, including links to the articles and object lessons we discussed. You can also purchase Rational Security swag at thelawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare, 
for ad-free podcast feeds. Yes, we're serious about it this time, guys, and other special benefits, including a committed ad-free feed for this podcast. Again, really happening, really there this time, we swear. Please do follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass it along to your loved ones. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Shillin of Goat Rodeo. And our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Petcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quinten Allen, and our special guest, Molly Reynolds, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. 